This is episode 45 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. We're continuing with Men's Roundup 2008 with Gary Thomas. This is session two, Saturday morning. Before I, I get started, there's been some questions about the books. I always feel funny doing this because I feel like a shameless huckster, but let me just go over a couple. Some have asked um, what book last night's and this morning's talk will be out of, and I'm not really doing these out of a particular book. Uh, as we talked with the board, there were some certain issues they wanted addressed for the men's retreat, and so I just didn't pull a stock talk out of one of them, but sort of cribbed together with, with three of them. The first one I did on Seeking the Face of God, which really tries to mine the best Christian classics for how to build intimacy with God. Um, authentic Faith for how God proves us often through real tough times, allowing them in our life to help us grow. And a book I'll talk about more tonight about being active um, on the beautiful fight. But, but one thing I, I can say that when I, because I do a lot of marriage retreats, I talk to women's groups sometimes and whatnot, the thing that I think women face the most with their husbands in passivity, and you often hear this and you're going to hate me saying it, I'm just quoting them, all right? But, but I'd say one of the number one complaints is I just wish my husband would be more of a spiritual leader. And the reason men hate that so much is that we don't know what that is a lot of times. And they often have a fairly narrow view of what they think it means. And that isn't always fair. But one thing I did to just want to give you some help. I put together two devotionals. One is Devotions for a Sacred Marriage and one is Devotions for Sacred Parenting. They're just 52 devotions, so one a week for a year... Another reason I didn't do 365 is I couldn't think of 365 original things to say about marriage and parenting. But, but also, just to be more realistic, most of us, if we're honest, I mean, there may be some super husbands here. God bless you. Most of us, if we're honest, aren't going to get together with our wives every day of the week and do something like this. But if you were to come home and say, honey, I, I know parenting has really built this up. This isn't a how-to book, but it's more just an encouragement. Or I'd really like this to help us grow closer together. Can we do this once a week for a year? Two to three pages reading together and praying afterwards. Um, you might not have any idea what it would mean to your wife if you're taking some initiative in that way. I had one woman come up to me one time and said, Gary, if my husband would just start praying with me now and then, he wouldn't be able to handle me in bed. So he'd be crying uncle long before the night is through. That's a real quote. I'm not promising these will turn your wife into a sexual barracuda, okay? But I am saying it can't hurt, all right? And if it does, it's worth a whole lot more than 12 bucks. So you do the math on that one. I think they mentioned last night you could turn in cards if you want to get on an email list for when things come out and we're going to give away a card before each session. Right now, your odds are pretty good. If you want to add your cards again for later tonight, tomorrow, you can. But let's go ahead and pick... The first one, can we? Brad Harold, Bray Harold, I'm sorry. Bray Harold, is he back there? If you just come back to the book table. What's that? <laughs> he might be behind me, how do I know? All right. All right. At the book table, you can get book of your choice. All right, let's pray. Father, so many already have. I thank you for each of these men. 
And Lord, I pray for your spirit to be unleashed in such a way that only you can do, that you could take the same words and apply it in 2,000 different ways. That's your creativity. That's the ability of your Holy Spirit, the ultimate teacher, to take your word and to show, it, show us how it applies in our lives, in our families, in our days. So we just ask that you would do that, Lord. You unleash that power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a 10-time sports writer of the year, Rick Riley has gotten to do a lot of things that most guys could only fantasize about. But on one occasion, he found out that sometimes dreams are better than reality, particularly when he got to fly in an F-14 jet as part of an outreach to journalists. I want to share with you some of Rick's responses to that trip. He said this, now this message for America's most famous athletes. Someday you may be invited to fly in the back seat of one of your country's most powerful fighter jets. If you get this opportunity, let me urge you with the greatest sincerity, move to Guam. <laughs> Change your name, fake your own death, whatever you do, do not go, I know. The US Navy invited me to try it. I was thrilled, I was pumped, I was toast. I should have known when they told me my pilot would be Chip Biff King of Fighter Squadron 213. I was worried about getting airsick, so the night before the flight, I asked Biff if there was something I should eat the next morning. <laughs> Bananas, he said. For the potassium, I asked. No, Biff said. Because they taste about the same coming up as they do going down. <laughs> A fighter pilot named Psycho gave me a safety briefing <laughs> and then fastened me into my ejection seat, which, when employed, would egress me out of the plane at such a velocity that I would be immediately knocked unconscious. Just as I was thinking about aboarding the flight, the canopy closed over me and Biff gave the grounds crew a thumbs up. In minutes, we were firing nose up at 600 miles per hour. We leveled out and then canopy rolled over another F-14. Those 20 minutes were the rush of my life. Unfortunately, the ride lasted 80 minutes. <laughs> it was like being on the roller coaster at Six Flags Over Texas, only without rails. We did barrel rolls, sap rolls, loops, yanks and banks. We dived, rose and dived again sometimes with a vertical velocity of 10,000 feet per minute. We chased another F-14 and it chased us. We broke the speed of sound. Sea was sky and sky was sea. Flying it just 200 feet off the ground, we did 90 degree turns at 550 miles per hour. And I egressed the bananas. <laughs> I egressed the pizza from the night before and the lunch before that. In fact, I egressed a box of milk duds from the sixth grade. <laughs> I made Linda Blair look polite. <laughs> because of the G's, I was egressing stuff that did not even want to be egressed. I went through, went through not one airsick bag, but two. Biff said I passed out twice. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was coated in sweat. At one point, as we were coming in upside down in a banked curve on a mock bombing target, and the G's were flattening me like a tortilla, and I was in and out of consciousness, I realized I was the first person in history to throw down. <laughs> A week later, when the spins finally stopped, Biff called. He said he and the fighters had the perfect call sign for me. Said he had sent it on a patch for my flight suit. What is it? I asked. Two bags, he said. <laughs> I can't even fathom the power. At one man's disposal, when he gets in the cockpit of an F-14, you just think about that responsibility. You think about the firepower that you could use to protect and defend a country or terrorize a village. It really is amazing what we put under one man's control when he gets in an F-14. But biblically, the Bible would say all of us have some degree of power and some degree of influence. I want to talk this morning about how responsible we are in using that control, authority, influence, and power. Last night we talked about the silence of Adam, how our passivity and silence doesn't honor the act of God who made us. But I want to look at the other end of that this morning and look at how our abuse of power can wreak havoc in the same way. In fact, I'd like to say that the tyranny of Adam fuels one of the most contentious issues of our day. We talked last night about how our silence fuels, you know, guys going to prison, rapists, kids dropping out of school, kids with their unwed pregnancies. But the tyranny of Adam, the abuse of power, actually feeds perhaps the most contentious social issue of our day. And I'm referring to abortion. Consider this: Harvard-trained friend of mine, John Rankin, lives in Connecticut. He's put together these statistics: 82%. Of all abortions are on unmarried women. Of the 18% who are married, three quarters of these women are pregnant through adultery. For the remaining one quarter, most have husbands who are ready to leave the marriage unless she decides to get an abortion. So, guys, think about this. If we would behave ourselves sexually as Scripture calls us to behave, if we would honor God with the most intimate parts of our bodies, abortion would all but cease to exist. There would be virtually no demand for it at all. Which means we shouldn't be surprised on the day of judgment if God lays the sin of abortion at our feet, primarily. For us men who have put women in situations where they feel like they have no other recourse, to call abortion a woman's issue is laughable, and that it completely removes us from the responsibility that's behind it. John Rankin says this: Human abortion is overwhelmingly a matter of male chauvinism, where men forsake women in their pregnancies. Healthily married couples, apart from rare. And life-threatening variables rarely consider an abortion. Now, this leads to a deeper question: How does a man get that kind of power? What would make a woman give a man that kind of control and influence in her life that she would turn against a child growing within her, trying to appease this man? Where do we get that influence? 
hands. The Bible talks about this in Genesis chapter 3. We started that chapter last night when we looked at the entry of sin into the world with Eve eating the apple, Adam's silence, not speaking up, going in. We were looking now at the consequences of that. If you go further in the chapter in 3.16, God is speaking to Eve and he tells her very clearly and explicitly, these are the consequences. Now that sin has entered the world, this is what's going to happen. Here's what it says. Before I do this, am I doing something to the mic to make it pop like that that I can stop doing? Is it bugging anybody? All right, I won't let it bug me. Sorry, all right. Genesis 3.16. Eve is sin. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So God is telling Eve, now that sin has entered the world, there is a bent and a bentness and a brokenness to the relationships between men and women. And here's how it plays out, Eve. You're going to have this inordinate desire toward men and they will rule over you. Now, desire is a very tricky word in the Hebrew. Hebrew scholars debate this. I'm not even close to a Hebrew scholar. Some call it an inordinate desire, a desire that's leaped bonds, just a, an intense, panic-stricken desire. Others would call it a desire to pull them down. All would agree that it's unhealthy desire. This isn't something good. This is something that has gone wrong between the genders that has resulted in broken relationships. Kyle and Delich have called it a desire bordering on disease. Now, if you can get through the political correctness and you talk to counselors who actually deal with real people instead of sound bites, they confirm this. Friend of our family's Dr. Melody Rohde has been a marriage and family therapist for over 20 years. And she said to me, Gary, I don't know if you can root it in Genesis 3.16 or not, but I can tell you this. We women are bent toward our husbands in a way that you men aren't. We just are. Says it's not always the case, but in the vast majority of times, women are far more invested emotionally in the intimacy and the emotional connection of their marriages in a ways that guys just don't seem to be. That's just the way it is. And I've seen this lived out. When I was out on the East Coast, living in the Washington, D.C. area, I worked for a national ministry that developed pregnancy resource centers across the U.S. and Canada to help pregnant women in crisis. And these women would come into the centers and it would just be shocking to hear their story because they would be made miserable by these, sorry to use it, but I mean, these guys had just been jerks to them. They had been controlling, they had been demeaning, they had just abused them. I mean, the worst things you could imagine. And these young women were panicking that they might lose this guy unless they got an abortion. And you're thinking, the best thing that could ever happen to you is if you never saw this guy again, and yet to these young women, it was their worst nightmare. They couldn't even fathom the thought. It's going back to Genesis 3.16. Their desires are bent. Now, here's where it gets ugly from our perspective as guys. A lot of you have never read Genesis 3.16. You've never read theology, but you have just intuited it. You've noticed in relationships with women, maybe with your wives, whatever, you, you, you just pick up that it's there and we are tempted since Adam with the sin nature that we've inherited to abuse that power. Instead of to use that power to protect and defend a village, we might terrorize people with it. Here's an example of how influential men can jump the bounds. And I, 
I realized this morning I was looking at this, this is a little bit unfortunate because it might sound partisan. I'm only referring to Democrats here. Last thing I want to do is make a partisan statement this morning, all right? We have all seen Republicans have had more than their share of scandals. I'm not making a partisan statement here. I'm making a spiritual example. That's all I want you to receive it as, okay? History is made in 2001 when Mel Reynolds, a congressman from the Midwest, was one of 176 criminals that President Bill Clinton pardoned just before he left office. There's nothing unusual about that. Every president pardons a bunch of criminals right before they leave office. That's what they do, it's to be expected. Mel Reynolds had made headlines by being convicted of, an, of numerous financial and disclosure crimes, but what had really pushed him out of office is when it came out that he had slept with an underage, an underage campaign worker. He's then pardoned by Bill Clinton to not have to serve the rest of the prison term and then hired by Jesse Jackson to work in the Rainbow Coalition. So what we had in one moment was a congressman who'd had sex with an underage subordinate, pardoned by a president who'd had sex with a young subordinate, and hired by a pastor slash activist who had made his own headlines for having an affair with a younger subordinate. Three men of power, different sectors of society, and that's how they use it. Now, this didn't make a lot of national play because Mel Reynolds is, is a congressman in the Midwest, but I happened to be traveling in Chicago when all of this was coming out and people were making a big deal of it. And I was listening to a local radio station and one guy called in, and I apologize in advance for the grammar, but this is what he said. He recounted, he goes, oh, that don't mean nothing. That's just what men do. Any man would do that if he had the chance. I remember listening to that saying, Lord, please, may we not start to define men by Genesis 3.16. At our lowest and least. That's not what godly men do. Let me tell you what godly men do. A good friend of mine travels around the country. He works with a lot of Fortune 500 companies. He does training for leadership, community building, team building, and all of that. He had a quarterly contract with a well-known Fortune 500 company, was doing a day of training. They had the execs there and the junior execs, and he noticed one of the junior execs, it was a rather young woman who had the goods and was eager to show everybody that she did as much as she could in a business setting. He got done with the day's training session, went back to his hotel room. About 10 minutes later, there's a knock on his door. He opens it up, and it's this young woman. She pushes right by him and walks into his hotel room. Now he stays with one foot out in the hall and the door opens saying, you can't be in here. This is so inappropriate on so many levels. If you have any questions, we can go down to the lobby and talk, but you can't be in here. She started to get really flirtatious. and said, what's the matter, are you scared? She then got even more explicit and made it clear to him she was available for any sexual favor of his choosing. Let's just have a good time. And he resisted, he started to get out his phone, and I don't want to describe what she did next to try to seal the deal, because I don't want to put the image in your mind, but it was over the top provocative. So he whipped open his cell phone, he says, I'm sorry, you've given me no choice. If you don't leave right now, I've got to call your boss, and it's not going to go well for you. And so she finally pushes back out by him in a huff and leaves. He told his colleagues exactly what had happened. They documented the time. He wanted it down. I mean, he's experienced in these business matters. He wanted to cover his bases as best he could. 
Three months later, it was a quarterly contract, he's back working with this company again, doing another day of training. After the first day of training, this woman comes up to him again and says, we need to talk. And he's thinking, is this a Joseph and Potiphar's wife type of thing where Joseph resisted Potiphar's wife and then he gets in trouble and he braces himself for the worst because he's worked through a lot of that with so many other companies, but she immediately put him at ease. She looked at him and said, I just want to thank you for being the first man who ever cared about me more than he cared about my breasts. She went on to say, and this wouldn't surprise any counselor here, that she'd been sexually molested as a young girl. And since that moment, she had been bent in her relationships toward men. So whenever she was impressed by a man or saw a man in authority, she wanted to get that new balance of power by becoming sexual with him. And she had yet to find a single man of influence who would turn her down. And she explained to my friend, when you finally said no to me, I realized how messed up I'd become. So I've started going back to church and she just shared what God was doing in her life now. Guys, let me tell you this. When a woman who isn't your wife throws herself at you sexually, there's usually a reason and it's never a good one. Let me say that again. When a woman who's not your wife throws herself at you sexually, there's usually a reason and it's never a good one. And if you use your influence, whatever it is, the way you look, the money you have, the position you have, your authority or whatever, if you use that for your own enjoyment, you are literally re-victimizing her. And it goes beyond actual sexual relations in this situation. You have influence with a $20 bill, right? So you go into a strip club and you lay that $20 bill down and you can get a young woman to do what she would not do for you otherwise guys there's usually a reason a young woman is willing to dance in a strip club and it's never a good one i'm not saying 100 percent of the time i'm saying if you talk to counselors 80 to 90 percent of the time and you are using the influence of your money to re-victimize these young women and i stress this not to make you not to condemn, because I know a lot of you, you wish maybe you could stop, and it's an entirely different issue for you. It's become almost like a compulsion. But when I talk to men so often about this issue, even the repentance is self-centered. What if I'm caught? What if I'm exposed? What will this do for my reputation? What will this do for my marriage? Look how much money I'm spending. Right? Well, fine, I want him to look at those negative things, but first I want him to think, what are you doing to the women who work there day after? You feel guilty being in there for an hour. What do you think it does to a woman's soul to go there day after day after day? What that shuts down inside her heart. 2 Corinthians 13.10, Paul says this, That is why I write these things when I am absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. Catch this. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Paul says this principle here is clear. Whenever God has given me influence or authority, whether it's money, whether it's a position, whether it's you know just having somebody that works for me, that must be used always to build people up, not to take advantage of them, not to tear them down. 
That word authority, the Greek word for that is exousia, related to dunamis, which is where we get the English word dynamite. There's this sense of power that we all have. And since Genesis, since Genesis, we men are tempted every day to abuse that power for our own benefit rather than to serve, protect, and defend. 1 Corinthians 10 24, Paul makes this very clear. Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. So here's the principle. If I have any authority, any influence, how am I using it to build people up instead of tear them down? And it starts young. I talked to the young guys last night. Let me do it again. Do you have a MySpace page? Are you on Facebook? If Jesus were to look over your shoulder as you're sitting there, as he is, but if you were to recognize that he's doing that, would he be looking at that page with you saying, bless you. You're encouraging others. You're building them up. This is a light on the web. Thank you for creating a place where people are built up and encouraged. Or would you be ashamed that people are being torn down and ridiculed and mocked? Let me go a little older. College guys, you're going away. You've been pumping. You're a member of the gun club, all right? You, you wear those shirts that show what you have. And, and you're around a young woman. You can tell she's into you. You just know it. You know she's really not your type. Nothing's going to happen. But maybe she's giving you influence. You want to just see, would she really be interested in me? You're just kind of playing around with her. Or worse, maybe you'll let her think you might be interested if... She's agreeable to you. Are you abusing that authority and tearing her down? Or are you lifting her up? It happens in every arena, whether you're a boss, whether you're a police. It can, it can happen behind the pulpit. We can use any influence God gives us to try to impress people. Of course, God has his ways of humbliness. I know one pastor who was getting a little bit uh, dramatic in his prayer. He said, oh Lord, before you we are but dust. A little four-year-old boy piped up really loud. Everybody could hear it. Mommy, what is butt dust? <laughs> we can get humbled. But really, every time you walk into a room, you can go in there to build people up or tear them down. Are you witty? Are you using that wit to build people up or to tear them down? See, the sinful male mind, we want to, when we get somebody over a barrel, we want to take advantage of them. We might even call it good business. Some of you are familiar with Jason Verlander. He was the 2006 Rookie of the Year in the American League, Detroit Tigers left-hander. When he was in 10th grade, one day at lunchtime, he was really thirsty, wanted some chocolate milk, didn't have 50 cents with him to buy chocolate milk. So he said to his buddy, hey, give me 50 cents, I want to get some chocolate milk. I said, I'm not giving you 50 cents. Get your own money. He goes, I don't have it with me. Come on, I'm really thirsty. Let me get some chocolate milk. I said, no. And Jason, tell you what. He was in 10th grade when he said this. I'll give you one-tenth of one percent of my pro-signing bonus if you'll give me 50 cents for that milk. And his friend's thinking, will you sign it? <laughs> he said, yeah, okay. So he took out a napkin. I, Jason Verlander, will give so-and-so one-tenth of one percent. Signed it, dated it. Gave it to his friend, forgot about it. Five years later, signed with the Detroit Tigers. His signing bonus was over $3 million. And his friend earned a pretty good investment, got over three grand for his 50 cent uh, <laughs> gift at that time. 
They asked Jason, was it worth it? He says, I don't know, I was pretty parched, but you know. <laughs> that can be our male thing. It's the whole Jacob and Esau thing all over again. Jacob had Esau in a place where Esau was really hungry. You give up your birthright for just this bowl of stew. I'll give up anything, just feed me right now. We tend to abuse it. God has given every person in this room some degree of power and influence. How are you using it? Men, those of you who are married, if it's true, and I think it is, that by and large our wives are just more emotionally invested in our marriages than we are, how are we handling that influence and power? That we can make them feel secure and safe and loved or miserable, alone and alien. Are we responding with cruel indifference? Or are we using that influence to bless them and build them up? Here's an entirely different situation. Those of you who have arms, uh, most of you guys are stronger than wise to say most because last week when I was in Houston, you know, around all the cowboys, somebody said I reminded them of Woody Allen. So I know I'm not too terrifying in my appearance, but some of you can be. Does your strength make your wife feel safe and protected or threatened and vulnerable? Just your physical strength. Does it make your wife feel like she is in a secure place or does she feel threatened by yourself? How are you using that influence? And are you using your ability to earn and to serve to bless her or just to take advantage of her? We can be indifferent. I was sitting in a banquet one time. It was a fundraising banquet. And there was this guy with his wife and I was just talking to his wife, getting to know her schedule, and I was shocked because she was explaining how she was homeschooling her kids. They had like five kids. She talked about how she'd get up at 6.30 to start homeschooling, and she'd work all day till about 5 or 6, get dinner ready, and then she worked at a grocery store from 6 to 11 to help earn money. And then she'd be getting, you know, five hours of sleep, she'd be at, and my jaw's just dropping open. And her husband sees my expression and I don't know if it's out of insecurity we don't regret it for a moment and I thought excuse me I would regret it every second if my wife had to live that schedule I mean sometimes you both have to work really hard life can be like that but I'd be thinking I would be working two or three jobs before I would put my wife through that schedule I remember being at a regional airport one time. This might sound sexist. I might sound like a throwback, but it's one of those small airports where you, they don't take the luggage and put it on a revolving carousel. It's so small, they just open up, slide the door, and then just leave it, you know, on a big shelf that's right there. And so I could see the woman who's unloading the rack and throwing the luggage down. And it struck me because she's about my wife's age at the time, about my wife's build, pretty slender, fairly small. And yet she's lugging this heavy luggage and taking it from the cart and throwing it onto the shelf. I remember looking at him saying, not my wife. Now, I would work three jobs before I'd be telling Lisa, that's what you got to do. Now, don't get me wrong. If my wife had come to me someday and said, Gary, ever since I was a little girl, <laughs> <laughs> dreamed of putting on the knee pads, leather gloves, and the earplugs so I can't hear the plane, and getting out there and pulling up, I'd climb Mount Everest to make it happen for her, but if any of you met my wife, you know, no way, no how, that's not the case. 
God has given us a calling. He's given us an influence. How are we using that toward our wives? I want to end with a story of a man who has done this as well as any man that I know. I got to meet him last year. His name's Robertson McQuilkin. He was president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. He served as a missionary to Japan, married to his wife, Muriel. And he's a little bit older now, but I would say 20 years ago, he and Muriel were sort of a power couple. Uh, she, they were both on the speaking circuit. He had written a lot of books. His wife had written a lot of books. But in the fourth decade of their marriage, Muriel came down with Alzheimer's, and it was a bitter enemy in her life. Once they figured out what the diagnosis was and they announced it because they had a you know, worldwide circle of influence, they started getting all of the letters from Christians. This happens when Christians get sick. It's really sad, but some were saying, well, this is a result of unconfessed sin. Here's what you need to do for her to be healed. Others would have these crackpot organic theories or this or that, you know. And finally, Robertson just sent out the word saying, look, please stop. We finally decided we would trust the Lord to work a miracle in Muriel if he so desired. Or work a miracle in me if he didn't. What a godly man. He's saying, look, we'll trust the Lord to work a physical miracle in Muriel's life if that's his will. If it's not his will to cure her physically, then may he work a spiritual miracle in me so that I can face what might follow. As a conscientious husband, he wanted to give Muriel some last memories before she lost hers. She really loved painting, so he took her to London. He wanted to go to the famous Tate Gallery, where a lot of Muriel's favorite masterpieces, the originals, were held. But it broke Robertson's heart because as soon as they got into the Tate Gallery, Muriel raced through the halls like she was running through a mall. She wasn't even seeing him. And he realized in a lot of ways he had already begun to lose the wife that he'd been married to for almost... 50 years. There were a lot of embarrassments during that long plane trip. Meryl had to get up and use the facilities and Robertson knew he needed to follow in after her. So she gets in and he goes in after her and he saw the smirks from the passengers around him and the flight attendants and he knows what they're thinking. A little bit old to be joining the Mile High Club, don't you think? <laughs> we said they didn't understand that if Meryl ever got that lock locked, she'd never get it open again. I had to be there with her. As they're at the airport getting ready for the flight, Robertson is walking behind Muriel. She was pretty restless at this stage. She would sit down for a while, then need to jump up and run around again. So he had his bag and he had her bag, and he's just chasing her around. She would sit. He would just sit next to her until she got up again. One time, Muriel chose to sit right across from a woman in a power business suit. She had her trio. She's on the phone. She has a laptop out. I mean, everything that she could need. And then she was saying something. Robertson thought she was talking to him. And he said, excuse me? She said, oh, nothing. So I was just talking to myself. I was just wondering, would I ever have somebody who loves me like that? I said, I want you to think about the power of this. Here is a woman who's had it all in our society, how they think a woman should have. You know, she's got the power. She's got the position. She's got the corner office. She's got the great clothes. She's got the important job, international travel. And yet she is literally envious of a woman who is losing her mind to Alzheimer's because she wonders what would it be to be loved like that? When I try to tell you, you don't get how invested your wife is into you, can I give you a better example than that? How much it matters to them 
that we love them and we're involved in their lives, that she wishes she could change places with an Alzheimer's patient. And yet Muriel loved him as much as Robertson loved her. During the latter days of Robertson's presidency, Muriel would panic whenever he would leave her to go to work and she would go to his office. They lived within walking distance. And one day, keep in mind, she's losing her mental faculties. She's in such a panic, she forgot to wear her shoes. Just forgot to wear her shoes. It was concrete the whole way, and she shows up in Robertson's office with bloody feet. And Robertson knew the day had come to set aside his influence, to set aside his power, to set aside his position as president and a traveling speaker, and to stay home and take care of his wife. He explained why in an incredible letter to the seminary. Here's what he said. The decision to come to Columbia was the most difficult I have ever had to make. But the decision to leave 22 years later, though painful, is one of the easiest. That decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. Now at home, he was reading the paper one day. There was a columnist who has a, one of the advice columns and somebody had written in about how their wife wasn't meeting their needs and they wanted permission to get a divorce. And the column was saying, yeah, that makes sense. If the marriage has ended, you might as well just admit it. And as Robertson was looking at every one of the criteria that she set up for what would make for a successful marriage, he said he was struck. This is a quote. There is an eerie irrelevance to every one of those criteria for me. Guys, I'm not trying to whitewash or make this sentimental. I mean, what he did is as tough as it gets. There's one day Muriel had a bathroom accident, right? He's cleaning her up, listening to a famous preacher on the radio. The preacher's challenging men, saying, Men, are you really at home? I mean, really at home? And with feces on his hands, Robertson is laughing, saying, Yeah, Chuck, I'm at home. <laughs> If they're in, anywhere I am, I'm at home. When he took Muriel into the doctor, the doctor, amazed at Robertson's love, unburdened his heart, saying, Robertson, perhaps you didn't know this, but in this country, when a woman gets Alzheimer's, seven out of ten husbands will leave. Seven out of ten. Men, may that never be true of God's church. May we shame each other if we have to. To hold ourselves to our care. We can have no other opportunity for witness. Robertson was shocked. He said this, just when they're needed most, I thought to myself, how could they do such a thing? Maybe they're having a love affair with themselves. That's the tyranny of Adam. Men having a love affair with themselves, regardless of what that business deal does to their other guy, regardless of what their lust does to the young woman, regardless of what their indifference does to their wife, they don't really care. They've got the power. They're going to use it. Near the end of Muriel's life, Robertson was taking her out for a walk. She loved to get out in the sun. They lived by a busy street, had a sidewalk. So Robertson would keep running around her to make sure she didn't dart out into the street. He was just entirely at her disposal, running around, being at her elbow, make sure she's kind of, he's gently putting her back as she starts to get too close to the road. And ahead of him was this homeless man, obviously, somewhat demented, just kind of mumbling to himself, walking toward him, and he sees this elderly couple, and he stops, and he stares. 
And he finally says in this really gruff voice, that's good. I likes that. That's real good. I likes that. Men, even a man who was losing his mind knew real love when he saw it. One of the best witnesses we could have in the Northwest is if Christian men could love their wives like that. That single men treated single women like this. What if, if Christians became known for this? A single woman would say to a single guy, you must be a Christian. Why do you say that? Because you just don't treat us like other guys treat us. Not with the wimpy passive silence of Adam who doesn't really give a rip or with the condescending, control-mongering, taking advantage tyranny of Adam, but with the self-sacrificing love of Christ that makes even an unbelieving world cry out saying, that's good. I likes that. Let's pray. Father, when we talk power, there is no power like yours. And when we talk love, there is no love like yours. Your word exalts you, Lord. You are what we long to be as men. You are the father we long to be, the husband we long to be. Father, I thank you that you don't give us your word merely to imitate it, but that you promise your spirit to give us the power to do that. And Lord, if there are some men here that don't know you, pray, Lord, they'd understand they can't do this on their own. This isn't anything a human man can accomplish. It takes your spirit within us. And I pray, Lord, they would begin to surrender their heart as talked about in worship. They would begin to surrender their heart to you today. Thank you, Lord, for pointing us toward your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.